you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. I trust you're having a wonderful week doing work that you love. You know, if you are not... We encourage you to join the ranks, the growing ranks of those who are figuring out how to do just that, how to find or create work that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Well, we're going to be covering a lot of questions from you, the listeners, in the next few minutes here. If you've got a question, you can go to the podcast link at 48days.com and find a place there where you can submit a question. We'd be happy to introduce that into an upcoming show. Here's some of the things we're going to be covering this week. Dan, how can I start a nonprofit? And is there a living in this for me? Well, you know, a lot of people are drawn to nonprofits. They think, well, gee, it's too tough to figure out how to really make money. So I must be prepared to start a nonprofit. And then people just give me money. Well, it's not that easy. It's gotten complicated, and we'll discuss why that probably isn't a good idea. Dan, how do you decide on which project to start when stuck in a holding pattern? How about this, Dan? How can I get my app development business rolling to make even $20,000 a year? Well, if you can create the next Angry Birds, and instead of being paid for the development, you just created it and put it out there because it's something people want yeah you can make twenty thousand dollars a year and a whole lot more we'll discuss how to do that if you are an app developer dan i've read that wealthy people rarely do housework or chores what's your take on this and here's a 26 year old who says how can i assert myself as an expert or authority as a 26 year old coach well we're going to be discussing that and more on today's edition of 48 days online radio thanks for being part of our growing audience you can see a lot of other people who are taking ideas and putting legs on those making those come to life in the 48days.net group now 48days.com we got a lot of resources there to help you as you're unpacking your own idea and moving toward the success that you want in your life And yes, even in these trying times, there are plenty of opportunities for moving ahead, developing your own dreams, turning those into reality, having work that you love and extraordinary income. This is not a time to just buckle down and be realistic and practical and wait till things get better or wait till next year's elections where maybe the government is going to make some changes. Nah, the government isn't in control of how successful you are. Get rid of that thinking. Don't go down and sit your butt down in the legislative plaza in your hometown and be part of Occupy Wall Street and think that somehow uh, that's going to uh, change your method or your chances of success. Now, I I believe in certainly taking part in causes and we can see long-term changes, but I just don't have the confidence that that kind of process is going to make any noticeable difference. Uh, We need to... Take advantage of the things that are already in place and you can have the success that you want. Well, here's a quotation for the day. This comes, this is actually a poem that comes from Langston Hughes. Old time, golly, he's been um, gone many years now, but was, was an African-American poet and author. And one of his most 
famous ones, at least one of my most favorite of his was this one. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is like a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field, frozen with snow. Well, I hope that you're holding on to dreams. You're holding fast to dreams that you have. Don't give up on those just because circumstances seem to be beating you down. Now's a great time to be moving forward with your dreams. Let's go to some of the questions. Brian from Alabama says, Dan, we have a photography business and to help with marketing, we set up tables, events at boutiques. We gather names for our mailing list and draw to give away gift certificates. The store's happy that we're bringing in more customers. Everybody wins. I've noticed that hardly anyone else does this here. I only know of one other lady who makes children's handprints that is doing this. So I'm thinking about starting a business to set up these events for other artists and get the stores and artists to give me a percentage of the sales as my commission. How could I structure this better? Well, I need contracts. How do I make sure I'm getting paid correctly? Could I tell the business that the money they pay me is a marketing expense expense so it's tax deductible? Well, Brian, you can certainly tell people that's a marketing expense as it would be. You're just asking for a commission on their business because you've helped them do the marketing. Very legitimate business. However, I think this is what I would call a very thin business. I mean, this is something where you're going to help a photographer get a little bit more business. They're going to try to identify what of that came from your efforts and then pay you a percentage on that. I think it's pretty tough to make this a real profitable business model. In as much as you've identified a need, you know that other artists need it, as they certainly do. But I think it's going to be, a lot of it is going to be your convincing other artists and small businesses that they need what you're describing that you can do for them. And then to quantify how much your efforts really helped pay off for them is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to track it. It's going to depend on just total honesty, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that as a business model. But I think I don't think there's enough potential here to focus your efforts on doing that. I think you would find more return on your time if you simply developed your own photography business. Did creative things there to expand that? You know, did a series of calendars or mugs or T-shirts or something, you know, to give yourself an ongoing residual kind of income. I think you'd have more potential for return there than tracking what here is described as a pretty difficult and a very thin business. Mike says, Dan, I really love your podcast. Enjoy your frank answers to people, business ideas. I've heard you mention the rights to books and an idea occurred to me. There are many old books that are in the public domain. I thought about collecting a few autobiographies or works of several founding fathers and then take snippets from those books and produce a compilation such as financial advice from the founding fathers or something similar. I thought I could take their words and perhaps add my own commentary to the advice to help connect it and apply it to the modern day. Sort of like what a few authors did with uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War as it applies to business. thought this could be both a written work and an audio work Good idea or not. Yeah, I think it's a great idea, uh, Mike, um, but recognize what's involved here. Yes, you can find a lot of things that are very valuable in the public domain, and you could get a series of things from founding fathers, just as you describe, and put those together. But keep in mind, putting it together is the easy part. 
the challenge as to whether or not this is really an idea that's viable is what's your marketing plan? Who are you going to sell this to? How are you going to market this? How are you going to experiment with titles so it really pulls people in? You may need something that has more of an emotional hook than financial advice from our founding fathers. You know, you don't want to experiment with all those things. So the real question is, can you do that? It's like when I work with authors and I tell them, you know, 10% of the process is writing your book. 90% then is the marketing. What are you going to do to sell it? Who's your audience? How are you going to get their attention? So that's what you're confronted with here. It's a great idea. I love the idea. And certainly the content is readily available. The real question is, can you turn this into a business by developing a marketing plan so you can predict the number of sales that you're going to have? You know what the margins are and you can make this a profitable business. Hey, good luck on that. Keep me posted. I hope it works really well for you. Well, Joan from St. Cod, Florida says, I'm a food server or was. I just finished chemotherapy and radiation for breast cancer. Golly, I'm sorry, Joan, that you're going through that. The treatments damaged the nerves in my feet and legs, so waitressing is out. I would like to start a web page to help others navigate from diagnosis to survivorship. When I was diagnosed, I just went along with the white coats and felt like a dairy cow just going through the motions. I did wake up out of my shock, but not before making a few mistakes along the way. I would also like to join volunteers with women in need. So I'm thinking about I could start a foundation where the donations people make goes to women's health care and daily needs. Where can I start this? And is there a living in this for me? I feel passionate about helping women get through this. Well, again, I empathize with your situation, Joan, but I don't think this is a good idea. I mean, who would make donations and why? Why would people choose to give to this rather than to the Susan Comain Foundation? You know, that's well established or the thousands of others foundations and nonprofits that are already out there that support cancer research and the needs of ladies with cancer. Why would they give to yours? I mean, you have to recognize this is a very, very long term process for you to build your reputation and credibility and to get people to give to an organization. Are you prepared to spend three to five years of your life just speaking, writing, doing blogs, drawing attention to this before you would ever experience getting significant donations? See, here's what you're confronted with. These are the three legs of the stool that I talk about frequently. What are you passionate about? That's one. What can you do with excellence? That's two. And a lot of people identify those. So you may have a really great plan for what you would do to bring women together with others who are in need and to bring volunteers in and to organize events. So you've got those two. The third leg of the stool is what's your economic plan? I think this would be the hardest work you've ever done trying to get people to give to your organization. I think this would be harder than waitressing. I mean, I really do. That's how difficult it's going to be to get people to give. I mean, there are just too many hands being held out there. You know, I'm confronted. We, we have standard answers. I mean, we're a small company. We have standard boilerplate answers for all the requests we get to give money. And it simply says, you know, that I've researched the things that I'm most passionate about. And these are the five or six organizations that we give to regularly. Sorry, we won't be given to your organization. I don't even see those requests that come in. They're screened. I don't even see them. There's so many. And again, we're just a small 
little company. So I think this would be really, really difficult. Just this morning, I got a note. It was actually in a blog, but it was from Pat Morley, who's head of Man in the Mirror. It's a great organization. That book was written years ago, and it's been an ongoing organization to help men become more the man they ought to be and a great organization. They're looking for 330 area directors. Each director will be over 1,000 churches in your area. So it sounds great. I mean, it's a very appealing kind of proposition so far. They need area directors. They're going to hire, the note says. But here's what it really entails. You establish a budget, and then you go find money to give you money each month. Now, I think it's a horrible plan for how to put this together. Why not just provide a clear service? If you're going to have a thousand churches in your district, could you find a way to then have each of those churches pay a hundred dollars a year, a hundred dollars a year to bring some new exciting content for their men in their organization? You're going to do events and so on. Well, boom, all of it there and you immediately just generated a hundred thousand dollars. Now that's a start at having an organization that is self-sustaining and that will provide you a reasonable income. What if you just determine that you're going to have, you're going to help mentor a thousand men in that organization and each one of them is going to pay a hundred dollars a year. That's less than $10. I mean, people put more value with something they're paying for, have them pay for it rather than thinking it's just going to be something that's free. And again, there's a hundred thousand dollars. So now you've got $200,000 I mean, you've got to look at these kind of great organizations in that way rather than thinking, well, it's a worthy cause, so people will just feel obligated to give me money. No, they won't. I mean, they just won't. It's just too difficult. I think you ought to go a different direction. Well, you're listening to Dan Meller and the 48 Days Online Radio Show. We come to you each week answering questions from you, the listeners. If you've got a question, just go to the podcast link at 48days.com to leave your question. Be delighted to include it in an upcoming program. Well, Jared from Mississippi says, how do you decide which project to start on when first when stuck in a holding pattern? I'm a student after being put on workman's comp due to an injury. I feel I'm in a holding pattern because I have very limited resources, financially speaking. I have a fixed income, but I have three ideas I want to work on and can't decide how to start. Do I work on the idea with the least cost, the idea that will help me the most, or the idea that I've been babying now for years and is my passion, but is the most costly? Well, a great idea is, Jared, attract money, but don't let that be your only consideration in choosing which business to start. You know, at the same time, if you think an idea requires money to start and you don't have any, then it makes sense to move to another idea for right now. I mean, nothing is forever in business. Start with what you have and grow that business so that it funds your other ideas. So be realistic about putting together a business plan for what would work. Do that, even if it's not your favorite. Do something that you know you can make work that'll create income for you. Three years from now, you can morph that into something else. I mean, that's what entrepreneurs do. Perfectly legitimate. Michael from Canada says, Dan, thanks for the show. I have a question about knocking my Android app development out of the park, mainly how to do so. I've been making Android apps for the last year in my spare time, and in a year and a half, I've made $900 from it. Wow. But I'd like to do this full time. 
And obviously, I'm adding things in here, but obviously $900 in 18 months isn't going to do it. I'm a novice programmer right now, but love learning more about it every day and firmly believe that I can become an excellent programmer. How do I get this rolling to make even $20,000 a year? And um, Michael sent me a link to the apps that he's done primarily for the military since he has a few friends in the service. Well, it'll be hard to make decent money if you expect to be paid for programming to develop the app. Now, even though that's a valuable skill, there's just too many people that have the capability of doing that. I mean, we recently launched the 48 Days app and we had somebody develop that who charged us nothing for doing that. We had lots of people offer to do it for us for nothing. So the market for being paid for developing an app is pretty weak. However, the possibilities for making big money you know, is wide open. What do people want? Well, the guy who developed the 48 Days app, he's charging 99 cents for that app. I agreed to just let him take the 99 cents. I didn't ask for a penny out of that. He would have been thrilled, I'm sure, to get 50-50 split of that. I, I didn't, didn't care. I thought he developed it. He can do everything. If we have 250,000 people that go buy that and he makes a quarter of a million dollars, I'll be thrilled for him in doing that. So you look around, what do people want? I mean, can you create the next Angry Birds app? I mean, how cool is that? I mean, it, I, don't, I don't understand why it's so popular, but over 200 million people have downloaded the Angry Birds app. Over 30 million people a day play the stupid thing. So <laughs> if you can come up with something like that that's that appealing, I'll tell you what, the apps that really are most appealing to me are the ones that just are fun. I've got a couple little granddaughters that like to grab my iPhone or wherever we are, and they know that I've got interesting things on there, things where you can go fishing and, of course, Angry Birds and a, a whole lot of other things, little games and so on. Those are the ones that I think you can get a lot of traction with. And keep in mind, you can make a living by providing things that people need. So you can make a living repairing transmissions or selling washing machines. But you're probably not going to get rich. But you can get filthy rich giving people things they want. I mean, look at what's happening as I'm recording this. This is Halloween week. Last night was Halloween. Well, they were telling the billions and billions of dollars that were going to be spent on candy and costumes. Those aren't things that people need. You think we're in a weak economy? How do you justify? How do you understand the billions and billions of dollars being spent on Halloween costumes and candy. Obviously, people are spending money on things, not just basic needs, but things that they want. So if you want to make money developing apps, look for those. Look for the fun kind of things. They're going to take off, go viral, because a whole bunch of kids love them, and you can make a whole lot of money. But don't expect to get rich being paid for the programming and development work. Just develop something on your own that people like and watch the sales go through the roof. Matt from Minneapolis says, I've read that wealthy people rarely do work or chores because their time is valuable and better spent working on their business or toward their job. What is your take on this personally and for someone start trying to start a business? Say the bathroom needs painting and the new not yet profitable business needs work on its website. What takes priority? What should be hired out? 
what is your time worth in the infancy stages of starting a business? Thanks, your book and podcast are awesome. <laughs> Man, I love the question. Uh, thanks for your question, Matt. You know, no one, now this, this is interesting to unpack because there is not a clear formula here at all. And you're going to hear me say some things that you will not hear the next entrepreneur say, I'm sure. No one works just on their business 24-7. We all look for balance and variety in our lives. So in theory, you're right. If I'm painting my bathroom and I know I can pay someone $15 an hour to do that, then I've just established my value during that time. But it's not really that cut and dried. I need breaks from just writing or thinking. Painting the bathroom may be just the break I need. Now, personally, I love painting. And I love the way you can just transform the looks of something really quickly. So personally, you know, I love painting. And I've rarely paid someone else to do that, ever. Uh, Joanna and I may decide to do it together. So it's an activity that brings us together. So you want to look for balance in your life. Well, here's how you approach this, though. Decide in advance how you're going to spend your time. So if you allocate eight or 10 hours a week to working around the house, then you can frame it as balanced deposits of success in that area. It's not just a money issue. I mean, I, I detest driving a dirty car. It's rare that any car that I drive doesn't get washed at least once a week. Now, a lot of times I just do that myself. Now, there are times when I go through the car wash and have them you know, put a uh, shine on the, t- on the wheels, at the tires, and clean the inside, vacuum the inside, and do all the windows and all that. And, but a lot of times I just do it myself. I've got a truck around here that lots of people use, and we use it for moving books and things. I mean, I change oil on that myself. It's just easier than taking it through someplace. Not a big deal. I don't even have to use ramps because it's so high up off the ground. I do it myself. Now, is that ridiculous? You know, for me as an author to be changing the oil in my truck, I don't even frame it that way. I mean, I've got a new hosta garden out here. I've already coordinated with somebody who's has been to some of our events here and a fan of mine that he's going to provide me with new hosta plants in the spring. I can't wait when those come. Guess who's going to be putting those in the ground, fertilizing them. I've got a neighbor who has a couple alpacas and he brings me alpaca poop about once a week, which I think is really cool. It's great on all the flowers and stuff that I've got around here. I spread that or I put it in buckets and soak it in water to make my own fertilizer. I mean, those are things you know, I, I just put wood chips in all my trail. I use my little tractor and front end loader to haul it from my big pile into the trail. And then I raked it out myself. I do a lot of stuff like that. I love being outside and doing things that are physical. I don't frame that as, well, I could pay somebody, you know, $10 an hour to do this. So I could be sitting in there writing yet another book. No, there's a limit to what you can turn out productively in your business. So making your business profitable has to be a priority, yes. But seldom can one justify paying to have routine chores done around the house before a business is profitable. So it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. If your business is not yet profitable, I don't think you can justify paying somebody to do those chores around the house that you can do yourself. Now, if you find yourself doing chores around the house 20 hours a week, then you got another problem. Then you're 
stealing time that you really ought to be dedicating to your business. But if you're putting 40, 50 hours a week into your business and you're working toward quickly getting that up so that it is profitable, then you ought to still have plenty of time to do those odd jobs around the house. If, in fact, you have the skill and enjoy doing those things as I do. Now, I probably do a whole lot more around the house than a whole lot of business people do because I was raised outside and I enjoy a little plumbing, a little carpentry, a little electrical, a little mechanicing, a little landscaping. I mean, I enjoy those things and I I probably do a whole lot more, um, but it's not, I don't frame it as a money issue. I frame it as those are things that I enjoy and I'm going to continue doing them. Kristen from Phoenix says, Dan, I'm a 26-year-old who's gone through an intensive one-year life coaching program, and I've been coaching individuals off and on for the past four years while also working full-time for a nonprofit. I'm trying to build my career and transition out of my current job, but remember in a podcast a while ago, it seemed like you discouraged life coaching in your 20s. I still think I have something special and want to go for it anyway. Do you have any suggestions on how... I can assert myself as an expert or authority at such a young age. Well, Kristen, I think it's awesome that you're already coaching at age 26. I mean, if you've been coaching individuals off and on for the past four years, that means since you were 22, and if you're getting paid for that, so you really are a coach, I think that is very cool. Now, I, I, I think the way that that works best is to focus on one area of expertise rather than a broader sense of coaching like life coaching. I think it is difficult to have the credibility when you're 26 to really do life coaching for people who may be twice your age. So I think if you frame it as these are the areas of expertise that I have, then certainly being young can be an advantage. I mean, look at the areas where certainly being young can be an advantage as a coach. So if it's sports or fitness, or health and diet, taking care of yourself, and you're a great specimen of that yourself, sure, that could be a great asset to be young and vivacious and enthusiastic about those areas. Technology. I mean, most of the people that I hire as coaches for our business that have anything to do with technology are probably younger than 35 at least. So I value their youth because they tend to know more about those areas than a lot of people who may be much older, even if they have, you know, degrees and credentials. I mean, travel, uh, personal image, I mean, how to dress. Those are all things that can be done probably better by people who are young, where youth is not going to be a disadvantage. So just be realistic about where you have an unusual area of savviness. Position yourself as a coach in those areas. Absolutely. You can uh, do it well. If I talked negatively about somebody coaching in their 20s, it was probably in the sense of being a career or a life coach where, yeah, I think that would be more of a challenge unless you choose to work with high school or college kids or again, being a peer, peer-to-peer coaching may be seen as an advantage and less threatening for the recipient of the coaching. Remy from San Antonio says, I can think of tons of pros on why I should start a small screen printing business from my garage, but I can't think of any cons. I'm debt-free and pay cash for everything. I don't have to rely on this to pay the bills. Art is my hobby, and I think this could be fun. I have plenty of time for this, and I like to think I'm quite good with people. 
Help me find the bad so I can make a clear decision. Well, Remy, I can think of some cons. I mean, certainly. I mean, there's a lot of competition for silk screening that you're talking about. The cost of supplies, the shirts, the ink, et cetera, keep going up. Just do a business plan so you can see the whole picture. But don't try to artificially come up with reasons it won't work. Man, it's too easy to do that. Let your enthusiasm and optimism fuel your success. I mean, you need to be optimistic and have the idea, man, I'm going to knock this thing out of the park and just go ahead and do that. I mean, too many people I know are very quick to see the cons. They're quick to see why this won't work. And so they end up never doing anything. And they end up at the end of their life looking back and, gee, it was just a mediocre life. No, do the things that you really enjoy and be successful in doing that. Well, Hey, you're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. If you've got a question for me, you can go to the podcast link at 48days.com to leave your question there. Hey, this is John Tash, host of Intelligence for Your Life, and you're listening to my good buddy, Dan Miller. You know, finding your purpose and passion is the first step to living out intelligence in your own life. 48 Days can show you the way. Now, back to Dan. You know, John Tash is a great example Drop that in there for a reason right after this question about trying to find the cons. John was being paid extremely well, uh, well over a million dollars a year to be co-host on Entertainment Tonight. And John is very open about describing that as what he saw as the low point in his career to stand there in front of a TV and read celebrity birthdays. He wanted to play the piano. Well, it's not easy to come up with cons about that. I mean, who, who gets rich playing the piano? I mean, nobody, uh, everybody will tell you that that's a very ridiculous thing to do. You don't want to go do that. You got to do something, you know, responsible. And here he already was at the top of the game in many ways on a popular TV show. Why would he leave that? But John knew his heart wasn't in it. He knew he wanted to play the piano. So he quit that fancy schmancy job of being in front of the camera as he was and started playing piano. Now, I don't know if you've kept up with John's career in the last few years but uh john has done very well uh one of the first concerts he did was the one at red rocks uh, interesting story with that mortgages house to finance the concert had a full orchestra there and at red rocks if you know the area in colorado it's a beautiful beautiful area but it was an outdoor concert and about halfway through it started to rain the orchestra members all grabbed their instruments headed for cover they're gone they're out of here John, you got to be kidding me. You know, I put everything on the line for this concert. The orchestra is leaving. I got an audience here. What am I going to do? He kept playing the piano, kept playing the piano in the rain. It's one of the most successful concerts he ever did and continues to sell well even today. That's where you overlook some of the cons that other people can point out to you. Say, you know what? This is what I want to do. This is what my passion is. I'm going to go ahead and do this. Rhonda from Texas says, I work for a company where the employees take the banana approach to life. Knowing this, should I just quit? Is there any way to change a corporate environment atmosphere? I can't help but thinking about the saying, what would Jesus do? Thanks. I love your show. You've been a wonderful long distance mentor to me. Well, I work for a company where the employees take the banana approach to life. Now this, this is, this is pretty hilarious because I thought, well, you know, I, I kind of know what she means there because there have been some examples that I just Googled banana approach to life. 
I just put that in. I thought, well, you know, what, what do people think of when that comes to mind? I put that in. And the first thing that came up was an article that I wrote. It's on the CBN.com website. So if you want to Google that, you'll see what I wrote about the banana approach to life um, several years ago. But there's an article there. And here's the description and, and what Rhonda is referring to and perhaps came exactly from reading that article that I wrote some time ago. The banana approach to life. If you put monkeys, this is a story that's out there. And if you put monkeys in a cage, five monkeys in a cage, and then you hang a banana in there and a monkey goes to reach for the banana and you spray all the monkeys with cold water. Well, you do that repeatedly. Those monkeys learn very quickly to stay away from the banana. Then you replace one of the monkeys. Put a new monkey in there. Well, the new monkey loves bananas. Obviously, he goes for the banana. You don't even have to spray him with cold water. All the other monkeys jump on him and prevent him from going after the banana. You can over time replace all five of the original monkeys and all of them will prevent the new ones coming in from going after the banana. So apparently that's the kind of environment that Rhonda's working in. Well, that's not pleasant. I agree. But when you are in a corporate environment, and I don't know if the company that you're talking about has five people or if it has 500. So what you have to determine is what can you control and what can you not control? You may not be able to change the corporate environment. There may be too much history with the monkeys in there that have come and gone so that you as one individual can't change that. Now, I'm a big believer in the power of positive thinking and the possibilities of change. I mean, you know that. But at the same time, I don't want to invest the next 40 years of my life trying to change the corporate culture of a little company. I'm probably just going to choose to bolt and go on. So, but there are a lot of things that you have to decide about whether or not to continue working there. I mean, is your work that you do personally fulfilling and meaningful? Are you being paid well for what you do? Do you enjoy the people you work with? I mean, work is just one tool for a successful life. So even if it's not your dream job, does it fill a vital role in allowing you to have success in multiple areas of your life? I mean, in as much as I talk about we want the work to be fulfilling and purposeful and meaningful and your dream job and uses your best talents and profitable, I mean, all those things, and, and certainly I do think we ought to be moving toward a clearer and clearer application of those characteristics in our work. But at the same time, I'm not one to quickly burn a bridge if work serves a meaningful tool, as a meaningful tool for you. There are times when the work that you do may not be your dream job, but it serves as a reasonable vehicle to allow you to continue developing toward what ultimately will be your dream job. So, in times when I've been in college, when I've been working on graduate degrees, you know, did I worry about having work that I thought was perfect for me in every way? No, not at all. I could care less. There's a whole lot of things I can do. I can, you know, buy and sell cars. Of course, I do enjoy that. I can paint houses, and I already told you that I enjoy that quite a bit as well. So it didn't seem like a hardship, but do I want to build a business painting houses? No, but it's a reasonable way for me to continue supporting the needs of my family while I am working on additional degrees. So frame the work as part of what you're moving toward that being success in your life in a larger sense. 
Again, success in your life involves a whole lot more than just what you're doing work-wise. Well, so much for the banana approach to life. Hey, what a what a cool phrase. And I was a... Uh, I, got really tickled when I Googled it and found that uh, the first thing that popped up was an article that I wrote. Well, Sam says, Dan, your latest podcast, you talked about reading a lot of information, books with some meaning, and not reading much, if any, recreation-type books. Well, I've got a lot of feedback about that because I talked about my own affinity for reading, you know, self-help, improvement, you know, nonfiction books. I find it very difficult to make myself read fiction. Now, there are fiction writers who are bazillionaires because of the fiction they write. I mean, John Grisham and Danielle Steele and J.D. Robb and all those. And believe me, I see a lot of those books laying around my own house because my wife reads them. I just don't find them intriguing at all. I don't find have any desire to read them. So I hope I wasn't um, making broad swipes against people who enjoy reading those. I just don't find that they have anything to do with the success that I want in my life. They're just, they just are dead time fillers. So I I don't have much place for that. I'm very intentional about how I use the 168 hours a week that I have. So I don't find any place for fiction reading being, you know, worth the time invested. I, I have other things I'd rather be doing with my time. All right. So anyway, that's, that's just me. So again, Sam is saying in your last podcast, you talked about reading a lot of information books with some meaning, not reading recreation type books. Since I cannot read very well or very fast, I love to listen to unabridged, if available, audiobooks, mostly from audible.com. Would you say that for the few educated adults who cannot read very well, that audiobooks are a workable alternative? Or should we struggle through the hard copy book? Do you think someone can get the same from audio as they do text? Absolutely, Sam. I mean, learn in the method that fits you best. Audible learning is perfectly fine. We do learn in the way that you learn best. Yesterday, I had somebody stop by to pick up a book, and he walked into my office, and I had papers laid out row by row on the floor. Well, I'm presenting at a conference in Chicago tomorrow morning, and I can't see my speech just on a computer screen. I have to see it printed out, and then I walk through it. Now, I do the same thing when I'm writing a book, and we've got some shots here that they were probably on our website somewhere of me doing. If I'm doing a 240-page book, you can imagine what the sanctuary looks like in the final days of my writing those books because I'll have rows and rows of paper. I literally print them, put them on the floor, and walk along through the book where then I can see, oh, this paragraph needs to go in this chapter back here in chapter one rather than in chapter four. So that's the way that I, now I'm, so I'm very visual in that way. I have to see it laid out like that before I really see it coming together. This is like exercise. Not everyone needs to go run a marathon or go to the gym and lift weights. You find what works best for you and then make no excuses for what that is. So if you are an audio learner, 
absolutely, you know, do that. My son Jared is not a good reader. He struggled with reading in school, was diagnosed dyslexia and all those other wonderful terms, ADD and ADHD and all those wonderful things that schools are quick to put on kids. But anyway, big deal, whatever. He's not a great reader. So he learns through listening. And I mean, he can tell you what's in the third chapter of a book that he listened to six years ago because he learns in a very astounding way, but it it is through listening, not reading. And I still, he's 33 years old, I still read to him a lot when we're together. It's because I want him to, to get a particular concept. And if I've got a book, I'll just simply read it to him. Things that I want him to, books that I want him to enjoy and appreciate, I just simply get the audio version of that. Unfortunately, that's available for most anything out there. So no, not, not, not a problem at all. It's not a right or wrong, good or bad at all. Just do what works for you. Chris from Nashville, Tennessee says, Dan, I own a metal fabrication machining and welding startup, and I'm looking at adding radiator repair services. What type of research should I perform before investing resources into such an endeavor? Okay, Chris, what you need to do is to complete a business plan. Just work through a business plan, and we have a free business plan on some of our resources. If you go to 48days.com and just go to resources, uh, you'll see business plan. You can open that and work through that. See who else is doing this in your market area. Talk to auto service providers and ask if they would use you. Talk to used car dealers and find out how frequently they need a radiator repair service. Talk to the other radiator repair service people in your area. I mean, I've always done that. There have been times when I've wanted to start a new business and I go to talk to the other competitors and they say, oh, no, you know, nobody has customers. It's already too saturated, blah, blah, blah. But then I talk to potential customers and they say, wow, the people who are doing it, you know, really don't know how to give service. We'd love having somebody who provided a great service. And I've done that multiple times where I went ahead, even though those already in business said, no, it's a poor idea. And if I had to do it again, I wouldn't be in this business. Well, you want to do that as part of your due diligence, but then go ahead and make a good decision based on the overall information that you're getting. Well, hey, you're listening to Dan Miller. This is the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Each week we take questions that are submitted by you, the listeners, and go through and answer those. Choosing questions that I trust will help not only you, the individual asking it, but a lot of other people as well. I mean, these success principles, as we talk about them, are very transferable. If something is successful in one business, when you're successful in starting a radiator business, the same things that you use to do due diligence there can help you be successful if you're starting an ice cream shop or something else. So very transferable skills. You want to pay attention to the things that can help you in the business that you are in. Lyndon from Louisiana says, your opinion, do you think it's better to charge a one-time consulting fee to consult businesses or to ask for a percentage of ongoing profits as a result of your consultation? Is there a way to track this or is it just not possible? Well, Lyndon, it's a whole lot easier to just get a one-time consulting fee. No question about that. Asking for a percentage of ongoing profits is complicated. Can it be done? Absolutely. 
There are people out there like Jay Abraham, who's been around for years, who made millions of dollars doing exactly that. He would come in as a consultant and say, I'm not going to charge you anything for my services, but we're going to benchmark where you are in terms of revenue. And then I'll simply take 10% of the increase for the next 36 months, something like that. Now, I just made those numbers up, but you get the idea. He made millions of dollars doing that because he knew how to increase business revenue And by taking a percentage of that over a defined period of time, he made a lot of money. I mean, Chuck Bowen, a friend of mine from San Antonio, he's in our 48 Days uh, network of coaches. He does that, where he's taken several businesses and has helped them triple and quadruple their revenue, and now he gets a share of that. A couple of those businesses, he's now a full equity partner in those businesses. I would encourage you to establish a time frame Probably not forever. A forever can become cumbersome to everybody involved. You may have moved on. They may have moved on as well. But have a period of time, maybe for 24 or 36 months. Now, again, you can just charge a one-time fee for your consulting. That's the way it's typically done. But I'm certainly not opposed to creative things, creative ways to uh, generate ongoing or residual income as you're referring to. Great idea. Well, let me just grab couple more here. Damon says, Dan, about a year ago, you mentioned you were going to launch a new product every month or something to that effect. How did you plan that out? Well, yeah, Damon, I, I did. At the beginning of, of 2011, I had a list and had about 14 ideas on there. And then I committed to releasing one new product a month. Now, so I made it a priority each month to stay on track for the completion of one product. Now, some of those were 50 or 60 page ebooks manifestos but they included things like um wisdom versus passion little book of big ideas revision of the 48 days workbook i mean creating your own mastermind group the marriage box 48 low-cost business ideas in a physical format for this i love you who are you are you here anyway this is the beginning of november and i've completed nine of those projects so we just completed 10 months i completed nine at this point I recently signed a contract for a major book with a manuscript due February 1st. And that's just 90 days from now. So that's been consuming my writing time. But I'll effectively have that completed by the end of this year, and that would be number 10. Now, let me help you frame that a little bit. I committed that I would release one new product a month. It looks like, in reality, rather than 12, I'm going to have 10. Have I failed? no, I would not consider that failure. I mean, I don't consider that failure. I mean, I set my goals so high that if I ever reached them all, I'd be mortified. I'd know that I had set the bar too low. I set them so high that it would be, well, certainly not impossible, but not probable to accomplish them all. And I encourage you to do the same. But in having released 10 new products this year, do you think that puts me ahead of maybe about 99.9% of people on the face of the earth? Absolutely. So that's how I do that. But I decided in advance how I'm going to invest my time. Let me go one more here that kind of expands on that. And that'll be a wrap for this edition of 48 Days Online Radio. Kelly from California says, Dan, I love your 48-day plan to go from a list of business ideas to actually choosing and launching an idea. It's put a timeline and forced me to focus, something I've had great difficulty with most of my life. I have a plan. 
I wrote my business plan. I'm almost ready to launch. I'm wondering if you have or might suggest any other timelines or benchmarks to follow. Thanks. I appreciate all you do. Well, create a plan for using the 168 hours a week that we all have in advance. So put on your schedule specific times when you'll be working on those ideas. And just like I laid out, if you don't hit your timeline exactly, you haven't failed. You've probably bypassed 99% of the people on the face of the earth. That's how you approach new ideas. But decide in advance what you're going to work on, what your timelines are. But keep in mind, success is the progressive realization of worthwhile goals. Success is not just a destination. Success is a direction. And as soon as you point in the right direction and start moving, by definition, you're already successful. Hey, that's the way it goes. That's the way we want your life to be. We want your life to be full of those things that you consider successes. Thanks for being part of the growing audience, 48days.net, who are finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week. This is Dan Miller on 48 Days Online Radio.